Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, where we delve into the depths of what it means to be a man in today's world, and we explore the real-life challenges and triumphs that you and I face every single day. My name is Hector Santi Esteban, and I come with no answers, only questions for some of the most wise, insightful, and grounded men that I know. So get settled in. You're listening to Modern Masculinity. Fellas, what's going on? I hope this episode finds you well. And as always, I hope this episode leaves you better than when it found you. And and I'm honored and, and humbled to be a part of, of your journey and grateful that you get to be a, a part of this journey as well. I'm, I'm just honored that you would be here uh, today. And, and today is, is another special conversation. And if nothing else, I'm trying to introduce you to people who I think can have a positive impact on your life no matter where you're at or what you're going through. And today's guest is, is absolutely that. And his name is Matt Gilhooley. And uh, he's someone who we got connected once uh, we both got into the podcasting space. He uh, has a show called The Life Shift and is uh, just about 100 episodes into his, uh, into his journey. And he's transformed a ton of lives. To really see what has happened because of this podcast is is incredible, and and the lives that it's touched, and not only from the listeners, but really from the also the guests as well. He's he's doing something special, and this um this conversation goes all over the place. He talks about some serious stuff and uh, why and and how we as men might might have an uphill battle uh, when it comes to working through and, and navigating our emotions. And so, in any case. I don't think we need to say much more than that. If you're if you're here, you're in the exactly the right space that you're supposed to be doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So enough of me, y'all. Let's get into today's interview with Matt Gilhooley. Matt, welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast. Thanks for being here today, buddy. Thank you, sir. I asked you before we hopped on the recording, I said, how are you? And it's always a tough question these days, especially when people ask me, I'm like, well, how long do you have? What do you, and, and, and what do you want? What do you really want to know? But take us into your world. I mentioned in the intro, you've got a thriving podcast. You've got a full-time job. You're like very well educated. You've got all these things going, but still you're super transparent on your social media and on the show. So I'm curious what's real for you and, and what sort of challenges are you going through or struggling with as a guy, a man, a dude? Oh, that's a loaded question. That's very large. I think it's a little bit easier these days, even though everything is a lot harder. That sounds really weird. But if I think about it, I have actively been trying to be more transparent online, as you kind of point out. I've actively tried to accept things as they are or feelings as they are and be totally okay with it. And I think for probably the first 35, 40 years of my life, it was not so. I was kind of conditioned in a way that boys don't cry or you're not supposed to feel this particular way or boys don't struggle with whatever it may be. That's a girl thing. That's whatever it may be. And for so long, I was fighting that. And now it's just like, you know what, I'm human. And I'm going to feel bad some days, or I'm going to struggle with food some days, I'm going to struggle with body image some days, and all of these things are okay. Because if I can't control it, then I need to honor it and, and accept it and kind of move forward with it. And so I've kind of used all that feeling and try to be as transparent online because I think or I hope that I'm not the only one that kind of feels that way. It's easier now because I don't feel like I have to hide it as much because I'm so public about it, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, I think our parents, our grandparents, you know, our caregivers, I think they really thought they were doing right by us by saying, boys don't cry, mm-hmm. toughen up, shake it off, rub some dirt on it. They really meant well. I think so, but I think they were also protecting themselves because if we were sad, if we were whatever, they didn't know how to address that or they didn't know how to fix it. And everyone's conditioned in the sense that you should be able to fix everything that's wrong. And maybe that's not being wrong, but at the time, I think, sure, they meant well, but I think there was also some self-protection there because like, what do I do now? If this person is seemingly broken, how do I fix that? Totally. I remember one time, and I've heard about this rather recently after having kids of my own, but I remember my mom said that she only hit me one time. Maybe I wasn't deserving of it because afterwards I asked her, I said, do you feel better? During it? Yeah, right after she hit me, I asked her, there's four-year-old me, I asked her, do you feel better now? Because that's what it was. It was the other side of it. It was like, okay, I can't control. I don't know how to deal with emotions that you're dealing with. Let me spank you or shut it down don't express anything, don't deal with the emotions and just pack it down so that I don't have to deal with it. And I realized that me now as a parent too, it's hard to sit with my kid in their emotions. Like Mm -hmm. it is very triggering for me. Like I'm feeling all my triggers go off. And to your point, don't have to fix anything. Just sit and hug this little guy and let him go through what he needs to go through and know that there's going to be someone to like be there. That's kind of what we needed, but instead we either got spanked or we got told there's no crying in baseball type thing. Yeah, and I think that was a product of their parents and then their parents, and I think it's this epigenetic thing that's kind of laying on our DNA that we kind of absorb. But I also think now, maybe in the last 10 years, everyone seems to be a little bit more self-aware. Not everyone, but you know what I mean. I feel like society has this awareness that there's things that are deeper than the way to fix it is to spank your kid and everything is fixed. I think we look into it beyond the fact that maybe we shouldn't hit other people. But that was just your mom trying to express her anger in that sense. And that was the only way she was taught how. But I think nowadays, you as a parent understand that that's not the best way for you to process your anger or how you're feeling. That self-awareness allows you to be uncomfortable and sit with your son. Well, thankfully, I've done enough work. But I also have to say that I especially early on in that journey, I really felt for people who didn't have a that level of self-awareness. But then also, if you do have that level of self-awareness, it's almost worse if you don't have the tools to be able to deal with it. Because that awareness is almost, you're sitting there feeling helpless going, I know that I shouldn't react like this to my kid, but I don't know any other way. Or I know that I shouldn't be acting like this. I know that the responses were out of alignment, were out of integrity with who I knew I could be. And the worst thing is you have this kid in whatever this external response is that's forcing you to look inward and triggering you. So many people are waking up that they're realizing they're going like 10, 15 years ago, it would have been just so easy to just blame other people and just point fingers and just go, oh, he was crazy. You could have just pointed the other finger. But now to your point, a lot of people are waking up and going, well, I probably played a role in that too. Maybe it wasn't a hundred percent, but we have some responsibility in it. Even if it's just the fact that we're going to go and if we don't heal ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in those same kinds of situations over and over and over again until we get through or past or whatever verb you want to use. Yeah, but it takes a lot of work. And I think there are still people that are totally oblivious to their own self. There is a lot of external pieces that, like you said, the blame piece, and they're not even, well, maybe in their own private, they have this shame that comes afterwards. But 
it almost feels like it has to hit like a precipice of some sort. It either has to be like really high or it has to be really low for someone, or at least for me, I had to hit one of those spots in order to be like, okay, this is not serving me at all. This is more damaging than being public about like how I'm feeling on a particular day would be. So, you know, I had to find that space and I don't know if we'll go into it, but all of this really stems from my childhood and how that response kind of worked itself out. And that's why I am the way I am now. Yeah, I think that big waking up that people are having is there's almost like an undoing that's necessary when you reach adulthood. There's a undoing of whatever happened. And even if you had a, like me, I had a rather cushy kind of stress-free, I mean, there were some big T trauma events, but like generally it was a pretty cushy lifestyle. And even that, there's things that I'm having to undo from that. Even the most cushiest of childhoods present a... Yeah, because you're, it's, you're like, a human. Well, yeah, like, they still even then present a landscape for yeah. growth as an adult. Now, I probably mentioned it a little bit on the intro, but you had a rather rich experience that, I don't know, I would imagine that it, even if you started working on the healing process right away, that it would have taken so long. But for you, there was like a period of, I don't know, but at least a loose word of like stuckness. And it took you several years starting a podcast to have these things. But I'd love for you to share what that process was like. And maybe we can color it with the sense of these emotions. I'm curious, as a young kid going through these kinds of experiences, how do emotions play in? What was that whole journey? Living with those, but not being able to be in those fully or not knowing how to yeah. work with or deal with them? Yeah. So when I was a kid, my parents got divorced probably when I was... I, I was either five or six when my parents got divorced. I vividly remember my mom being around. My dad wasn't around very much. I would see him here and there. I don't remember feelings back then. I was pretty young, but I was visiting my dad. He had moved a thousand miles away and literally more than a thousand probably. And I was visiting him for the summer and my mom went on a trip with her boyfriend and she ended up dying in a motorcycle accident. And from that point, my life was no longer my life because I had to move somewhere new, live with a parent that I really only saw on the weekends. Not that we didn't have a good relationship, but he was not my primary parent. It wasn't someone that I was very comfortable with, which is weird to say because I was my father, but I didn't live with him a lot. So that was a new experience. And I think at eight, and this is obviously with reflection, like looking back at it, because I can't remember those moments, but looking back at how I responded to that event was very much a protection, like an eight-year-old protecting himself from anyone else that he loved abandoning him. Because someone dying when you're that age and you don't understand death and the finality of it and all that, it kind of feels like abandonment. It kind of feels like my mom abandoned me. So everything I did from that moment on for like decades, which is a whole other story, was really out of fear that someone that I loved that much would leave. I was on best behavior. I would never get in trouble. I just didn't take risks. I would only choose the things that I knew I could be good at because in my mind, if I was good at it, my dad would be proud and therefore he wouldn't leave, whatever that may be. I just remember there weren't many times that I was able to feel comfortable being sad. Like I had to show everyone that I was happy because again, if I'm a sad kid, in my mind, my dad doesn't want to deal with that. My dad's going to just toss me to the side. I have to be a happy kid. And I think 
also society played a little bit in that too, because all the people around me, like we said earlier, they didn't know how do you help an eight year old whose mom just died? They didn't know how to do that. They were scared to do that. So it was like, let's buy him things. Let's make him happy. Let's feed him. Let's do whatever it may be so that he's happy. So then I perpetuate that as well. And it just becomes as a boy, you could either be happy or you could be mad. Those were the only things you could do because those were the acceptable feelings of a boy. This was late 80s, early 90s. And I I just internalized that for so long until I was like mid-teens. I remember the first time I really allowed myself to be sad. I was, I think, maybe 16. So there's a lot of harbored stuff. And you know me now. (laughs) I will share sad things and I'm okay with that. But like back then, I couldn't even imagine it. You just weren't allowed to be sad. Or I wasn't. No. I say that growing up Mexican men, the typical machismo men could Mm -hmm. either be angry or drunk. And similarly, Mm -hmm. if they were happy, it was usually behind being drunk because you couldn't be just happy. You weren't working hard Mm -hmm. enough or, you know what I mean? Like there was no allowance outside of that. And the challenge is I was looking at, you've seen one of those emotion wheels. Have you seen those? I think so. It's a wheel. It kind of looks like a spider web, if you will. And it's got the little pizza slices off the end of it. They start off with the big emotions. So it's like happiness, Mm -hmm. sadness, anger. And then it goes into like the more detailed ones where it's like joy and it just gets more detailed and more nuanced and subtle with it. The challenge as I was looking at that wheel though, is that 80%, you know, four out of five core emotions are negative. There's one core emotion that's positive and that's happiness. But outside of that, 80% of the spectrum is either neutral or negative. And so for that to be the case, like, let's just take that and let's just use round numbers here and say that 80% of the human experience is not happiness. But boys and men, you know, and women, I'm sure girls kind of experience a similar sort of this thing. But but boys and men are all of a sudden only allowed to express 20% or even sometimes none of those emotions. Well, there's a real cognitive dissonance. Because I remember being a kid being like, no, I'm not allowed to be sad. No, I'm sad. But your parents or whatever, they say, like, you don't have to be sad. Don't be sad. You know, don't be whatever. It's just, it's just. I'll give it. you something to be sad about. Yeah, that's what I got. to be sad about. Let me give you something to cry about. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. When you were saying that, part of me was like, but did we frame those emotions as negative? Because now I look at things that are sad and I find that there is joy in sadness because I think you know the other side. I think you know the full breadth of things. And if you can see something as sad, it also tells you that you've experienced something that's on the other side. And so there is a joy in that well of being that I don't know, I see there's value in all of those pieces. I don't necessarily always subscribe those emotions are all negative, because I think there's value in all of them, if that makes any sense. I mean, theoretically, but what is that? (laughs) There's also a guy sitting there going, Matt, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe I'm unique in this way, but I like to watch movies that depict some kind of really deep something because it's showing like a deep human emotion. And I find joy in the ability to connect with that emotion, if that makes sense, in a way that makes me feel less alone. And in that case, it's community building and not necessarily all negative in my mind. And maybe this is just like part of my journey, because for so long, I couldn't do that, or I couldn't associate with that, because it just wasn't allowed. But then I found other ways to express that were not healthy, whether that was harming my body and whatever that may be. Yeah, I think one thing that I saw recently was that something to the effect of 
Emotions are indicators. They're simply indicators. They're like your check engine light on or your fuel light. They're just indicators. And similarly to like if your fuel gauge pops on or if your check engine light pops on, you don't need to slam on the brakes, pull off to the right, spin the car out. Like in the same sense that just because you are having a certain emotion, you don't have to be beholden to that emotion, I guess is the thing that I'm trying to come away from it. But you also don't have to run away from it. Right. Right, that there's simply an indicator in the same way that you can pretend that check engine light is not on or you can pretend that your fuel light didn't pop on. You're still going to run out of gas. I did that and I puttered out on the side of the 10 freeway 100 miles outside of Phoenix and it was the worst thing ever. I was like, oh, I probably should have attended to that. And it's like you can pretend that it's not there in the same way that an emotion is not there, but it's going to bubble up, arise and come out or, you know, it's going to have its impact in some way. Whereas similarly, if you are noticing these emotions and you're just having an awareness that they're there, well, now you can make a plan. Okay, let's let's look to make a stop and whatever, or let's go get it checked out. Let's use these as an indicator, not as a prescription or a, a sentence, if you will. Yes, but again, I, I wouldn't run away from it. I think this version of me finds so much value in acknowledging those and sitting in them and finding out what my body's trying to tell me too. And not earlier, our conversation was about this like fixing word. At least now my version, if I'm having a bad day, I admit it to myself first to acknowledge it and then understand that whatever is happening is going to go through its process. I know it's not permanent and I know that there's something that I need to do and pay attention to. So I'm not trying to like immediately go, oh, this is a really shitty day and I need to fix it. It's just like, this is a shitty day and I'm going to see where it takes me. Yeah. Well, I would love for you to share like, because I find myself doing that and then I start gripping and I'm like, dang it, it's getting shittier and shittier and you start gripping. And I think that that starts to spiral in the wrong direction. So what does the other side of that look like? I don't know necessarily that there's a prescription that I have for it. If I'm having a bad day, it will take me this moment to realize, is this a fleeting moment or is this triggered by something? Or am I just not feeling great about whatever this time and space that I'm in right now? And so typically it's like, okay, well, yeah, this sucks. I just feel like shit and there's nothing I'm going to do about this. I will tell like my closest friends, I'll be like, hey, just want to put this out here. I'm not having a great day. Don't worry. Nothing to worry about. You don't need to like ask me. We're not trying to figure out anything. I don't need a solution. I just want you to know. Treat me normal. Those kind of things. Getting that out of my head, because sometimes when you catastrophize in your head, everything just seems like the worst. And then you put it into words and you tell it to someone else. So now it's public. I think that diminishes the strength it has, I think, for me. Was that, at least. Was that always easy for you to no, do? No, no. I would say that I started doing this around the time, probably shortly after I sat with my grandmother for her last 96 hours of her life and watched her take her last breath and had those last conversations with her because we were very close. When I lost my mom, my grandmother was my go-to person. She was first one I called when I got in the car driving home from whatever retail job I had as a teenager. She was the first person I called when I got home from school or when something good happened. And towards the end of her life, I definitely absorbed a lot of her qualities growing up because I was around her so much. And one of those was worry. I just worried about shit that didn't matter. It just didn't matter. And towards the end of her life, when we were in the hospice room and there was family just around and she still had coherent thoughts at that time, she was like, I wish I hadn't worried so much because this is all that matters in the end. And it was just like the people that loved her were around her. 
she realized at that moment how much time she had wasted just worrying about what other people thought or worrying about what would happen. So I think I was 34, 34 when she passed. And around that time, I stopped caring about what other people thought about decisions that I made or social media posts or sharing that I have this great job, but I'm actually going to step down from this job because it's not serving me and the judgment that I would get from that. Or I'm going to just quit, sell my house and move to another state and the judgment I would get from that. And I just stopped caring about it. And then it started serving me better. And therefore, I started trusting myself, I think. I started trusting that I can do this on my own and I don't need the approval of other people, which growing up after my mom died, it was very much like I need to know everyone knows that I'm okay. And at this point, it was like, who cares? How does that serve me? So I think that's kind of when it started maybe eight years ago at this point in which I was able to be more, I hate the word, but authentic in the way that this sucks or this is great or I'm going to brag about this and I'm not going to worry about you thinking I'm a braggart, you know? Yeah, there's so many things in there that I think a lot of guys struggle with, which is, you know, initially just sharing, getting stuff off their chest. I mean, so much of the guy plight, if you will, to just coin a term, is that they keep stuff so close to the chest. You know, there's so much shame built up around even just having a bad day that they don't share that and they don't realize the unburdening, if you will, that comes along with simply just sharing that, right? I feel like there's probably a real release when you send that text and just- Well, now everyone knows. You're just like, well, now I can't hide behind anything. Everyone knows. Yeah, which I think so many guys are doing and it's draining their energy. What it is, is it's draining their integrity. And then I think that it's draining their self-worth and confidence because they know that they are lying. Or then, yeah, they're pretending or that's the easier word to feel here. I'll, I'll share something that I've recently started sharing publicly, but I think it's important to put out there, especially as a guy growing up because of all the issues that I had, or I'm assuming I struggled with food, like eating disorder or disordered eating, I should say, through teens till now to this point in my life. And I just started sharing this publicly because for so long I was so like, oh, well, only women have that. You know, like that's what's shown on TV, that's in society. And that was a big scary thing for me to share with other people. Like, yeah, there were times where I had trouble just eating the right amount of food or really obsessing over what I was eating or not eating enough food or over-exercising at the gym or whatever that may be. And once I started telling people, I heard from so many people behind the scenes that were like, me too, I'm the same way. And it was other men and it was women. We're all having this human experience. But something like that, I was so afraid to admit to people because there's so much of the visual that we have in society too, of like, if you look a certain way, then clearly you're healthy. And if you don't look a certain way, then you're not healthy or there's something wrong with you or even something like that. As soon as I told people, It was like I didn't have to worry about it anymore. I still have the struggles, but I don't have to feel the shame in it because now it's public and now it's even more public. (laughs) Yeah, the shame thing, I think, really eats it. But why do we take it on? Well, I think it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, that there's that fear of abandonment if we share it, if we are authentic in our emotions. And similarly, I look at my circumstances and it was, there's no crying in baseball. There's no, I'll give you something to cry about type thing. And so it was just like, put and closet those emotions. I've likened it to the emotions being clay. At the very beginning, it's wet and they're sloppy and they're going everywhere and it's kind of a mess. But then you start to pack it down and it starts to harden and harden and harden. It's not as messy at first, per se, but it's also so much harder to clean up and undo the longer and more that you put in there. 
I realized that for me, that although not as traumatic as the experience that you went through, that there were these smaller experiences that weren't dealt with that were just packed on and packed on and packed on on top of each other. And so when a crack gets exposed or something triggers that and starts to dig into that, well, all of a sudden there's so much in there. It's so heavy. It's so mixed together that the undoing process is so much harder because it took so long to undo that sometimes I, at least I don't want to project, sometimes I go in not even knowing what I have to undo. Some of these events and some of the things that come up and breathwork practices and meditation and stuff, it's like, I totally forgot about that. I had no idea that that was locked up in there somewhere and just undealt with, but here it is and still causing some sort of triggered response 25 years later, yeah. you know? Well, that happened to me. I mean, I first sought out therapy for grief help in like early 30s. My mom died when I was eight. I thought I could handle it and clearly I couldn't. And I got to like 30 something. And that, I mean, for anyone listening that hasn't gone to therapy and you want to do it, just understand it's a process, even finding the right therapist. It's not like pick a random person in the phone book. Do phone books exist? Pick a random person on the internet and then go to them. You got to find someone that you can trust, that you can vibe with. And I was telling my story, like my fifth try at this. And she was like, you realize that everything that you've done your entire life is with that eight-year-old mindset, fear of abandonment. You are afraid that people are going to leave you. It seems really logical, but it wasn't. And then when she told me and someone unlocked that, like you said, it's like then <laughs> everything falls out of that closet that you've stuffed everything in and you just got to do one thing at a time. Therapy was great for me, breath work or whatever, you know, meditation, those kind of things don't work for me. My personality doesn't vibe with those things. But talk therapy is something that I really find value in and, and found that was the first thing that unlocked something. But I want to go back to something you said about how like people have the shame because of that fear of abandonment. We have to go back to that idea and go, if the people that we're afraid of abandoning us, abandon us because of us sharing our real selves and the things that we're battling, do we want those people in our circle? Is the goal to have as many people in your circle as possible or is it to have like really quality people in your circle? And I think that was one of the realizations that I made after my grandmother died. If they're going to leave your side because you just told them that you have a problem or you're facing depression or you have whatever it may be, you don't want them in your circle anyway. It helps me at least get rid of that shame of whatever my own real life experiences are. I shouldn't be ashamed of them. It is what it is. This is my life and this is how I am. And if you don't want to be part of my circle, then you're not. And yeah. if the people are in your circle and you're not being yourself, are they in your circle? It's such a good point. And I think humans, as logical as they claim to be, are like some of the most irrational oh, know, yeah. oh, we are. Yeah. things out there. And it comes back to that we are just not tracing it through, like you said, in the sense of if we're afraid that someone is going to leave us and they leave us because of this, there's something in that thought process that is severed is the only word that I can think of. Things aren't coherent. And when we take the time to line things up or think things through, then it just becomes a lot more clear. So I've heard it likened to bowlers in a river in the sense that these events, trauma, whatever we're holding on to, that they are like boulders in a river. And of course, the water's going to flow around the boulders. But if you remove those boulders, then you're going to have much more flow. There's just going to be much more flow. And similarly, that if we can go in and even those of us that feel like our mental health is strong or we have great mental health, 
I mean, I think that we all have work to do. I mean, for so long did I feel like those mental health people, you know, like, right. oh, there they are again, talking yeah. about their mental health. You know, yeah. they just... That's what they people just, think about me. looking for attention with their mental health kind of thing. Not realizing that, well, fast forward six or 18 months or whatever, throw a few life events in there and there I am. I think we're all there. Some of us are just more aware of it than others. And to say that if you're in a place where you're like, Hector, man, I don't know what you guys are talking about or why things are so crazy for you. I think it's like, well, even more important to steal or harden or do the work then when things might be easier because when shit gets hard or, or stuff gets really tough, it's not easy to do the work then. Of course, it's mandatory and necessary sometimes, but it's not easy or enjoyable. So had I woken up to this as a 20-something-year-old, I would imagine that I would have saved myself a lot of frustration or setbacks or, or failures yeah. had I started doing this work sooner. But I've learned, and with my podcast, I have a lot of conversations with people like this, in the sense that I look back at all of those struggles as valuable experiences for me, though. I feel like had my dad had the tools, had my grandmother had the tools when my mom died and like immediately got me into some kind of therapy and I didn't have all these struggles through my teenage years and 20s. I don't know. I, I don't think I would... Like a Harvard graduate, a NASA scientist. You know, but what is that? I mean, if we look I'm at that, kidding. then... But truthfully, people would think that. And then they'll also say, well, that success... I don't know. I think we were sold a bag of goods when it comes to success. And like, what is that? Why do we always have to keep winning? What is winning? Maybe having a shitty day in the long run could be a win. You could learn something from that. Just slowing down and leaning into yourself and figuring out what those things are. So I think there's a lot of things that were just fed to us through whether it was TV, whether it was our parents or generations before that, that we just assumed. For me personally, I look back even at losing my mom and watching my grandmother die and my parents divorcing and all those things. I look at those as part of my life. They are the boulders that are immovable. They're not moving from my river. And they just push the water in a different direction. The river moved in a way that it wasn't meant to move, but now it's here. So I'm okay with it at this point. I don't know that I would see as much value in it had I learned all these things early on. It would just be like second nature. If you always knew how to play baseball, it'd be different than if you learned and you got really good at 40. You'd have a different feeling because you sucked for 40 years and now you're amazing. Whereas if you've always been good, you're like, whatever, I can do it. And just to carry through that analogy, you're like, gee, I've wasted my time now. I'm 40 and this skill is pointless. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, it's possible, just but a... like you would see so much if you struggled for 40 years with something and then you finally got it, it feels a lot better yeah, than if you've always baseball. been able to do it. Well, no, I'm no, we won't talk about baseball. We won't talk about sports. <laughs> Remember, I was a fat kid, so I didn't play many sports. But you're right. That is life. The first half of our life gives us the circumstances to which it creates the fertile ground for which we grow in the second or the third parts of our lives. If we're willing. Well, I think that we're going to learn based on those regardless. But willing, yes. Those lessons are going to come and we're going to be forced to deal with the ramifications of those circumstances regardless right. Of our willingness, frankly, but if we are willing, then all of a sudden we can have a different perspective, right? Like I think all yeah. of a sudden we now see it as a gift. We now see it as an opportunity for growth. We see it as an opportunity as opposed to a sentencing, which I feel like so many people think that their circumstances is their sentence. Mm. Um, yeah. And that's not well, the case. and it's easy to do. I mean, I did it for decades. I used my mom's death as a crutch. 
I couldn't do things. Oh, like if something went wrong in my life, it was definitely Matt going, well, that's because my mom died when I was a kid. Yeah. And it's really I, not. I always said I was a short Mexican. And I was like, well, how am I going to succeed? I'm a short right. Mexican. I can't do it. You I know? can't do, I can't do anything. I mean, you know. Exactly. <laughs> and we put that on ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we put it on ourselves. And, and that's why I say if you're willing, I guess if you also have the ability to take a second and reflect and be fully aware of what's going on, but that's really hard to do. And it takes a long time and not everyone's going to get there at a particular time. You just have to be willing to be uncomfortable and being uncomfortable is hard for a lot of people. Also, I think you're a few years older than me, but generally we came up in the same school system where things were supposed to be easy or you were dumb. If things were hard, then it meant you were dumb. If it wasn't easy, then you weren't smart. The kids who studied and then got good grades, they were losers. Do you know what I'm saying? Like in the sense of it has to be easy or it's not, I don't, I don't know, that was like such our ethos that it meant if you had to work hard for something, then you were actually less than those mm -hmm. who just were able to do it because they were God gifted. Not knowing that there's probably nobody who just had God gifted talent. Nobody just told each other that they were actually studying. I just was the one caught with the bag thinking that I had to get good grades without actually trying. But now I come out of this, you leave that kind of environment and you think that if anything is hard, it means that you're not meant to be good at it. So if a relationship is hard or it's challenging, this person's not meant for me. If a career is kind of hard or challenging, maybe I'm not meant for this. And so it kind of prevents you from going all in on something because you're afraid, you're afraid of failure. You're afraid of failure. Yeah. Yes. I think school systems are still like that. I think the grading system does that. It's automatic. That's how it, it places people in rank. I was the person that you would probably hate. Like I didn't study, but I did well in school because I don't know, I guess because I was triggered, like before my mom died, I was like a C student. After my mom died, I A plus across the board, as good as I could be. And a lot of that was out of fear. And I think doing that early on made it easy for me in school because I was just like, there's no other option for me. I can't do poorly because if I take a bad grade home, I could be alone. But I think grading systems automatically do that. And then we get into the real world. And then it's just, who are you? Oh, hi, this is Hector. What do you do? It's always about what job you have. It's always about what status you have. I'm the CEO of this, or I'm the owner of this. And like, that's not who we are, but it's some kind of status. It levels it. You go to a networking event. Now you know who the smart people are because they're the CEOs. And then if someone introduces themselves as a job that you seem to think that it's a lower level, then you automatically have an opinion of them. Not you particularly, but I think in society, that's something we've just taken on. I don't know how you fix that, but I think the more we can be real and broken people. And honestly, I think people with a lot more mess in their life, if you will, like events that mess them up or struggles or things like that. I think that all those things make those people more interesting people. I think that gives more value to society in general, or maybe that's just me making myself feel better about my circumstances. Well, yeah. And I think it's also relatability. I mean, one of the biggest things that has come from this show is that ability to connect and you hear from people and they're like, he's similar to you. Like they're the same way. They yeah. just, they didn't know that there were other people who out there like them yeah. too. The more we can do it, the more of the stuff that you're doing with your show, the more conversations I'm able to have on my show, the more we can realize that we're not all these A students, B students, C students kind of just out in the world. We're just people with complexity. And some of us are going to go through things that others have also gone through. And maybe we can learn from each other. And it's okay to go through it. Mm.
Well, Matt, you have conversations like these all the time. I believe you just recorded your 105th, 106th episode. Sure and, did. Um, 20,000 downloads, which is so cool and exciting to see. I feel like there's a new article coming out almost every week talking about the impact that your show is making. So talk a little bit about that and, and where people might be able to find you online as well. Sure. Well, the easiest place to find me is the lifeshiftpodcast.com. That's probably going to be where you're going to find out about the LifeShift podcast, which are candid conversations about the pivotal moments that have changed my guests' lives forever. Kind of really stems from my mom dying when I was a kid and my life was never the same. And so I have conversations with people kind of in two avenues. One, external events, kind of like my own, where out of my control. And then I also talk to people that got that burning fire inside of them and triggered them to leave the profession they were in and start something amazing in their own journey. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. So you can just look up Matt Gilhooley on LinkedIn and happy to connect. Matt also comes and hangs out with us on our podcast community every couple of weeks. So if you want to come hang out with me and Matt in a more relaxed podcast focused setting, come yeah. do that too. I want to thank all you fellows for sticking with us today. I appreciate you and being part of the tribe. Uh, we would love and be forever grateful for a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know a guy who is in the middle of this, going through something, or maybe there's someone who pops into your head as I'm talking about this, send them this episode and uh, let them know that you're thinking about them. And let's grow this tribe together. As always, we appreciate you being here. We'll see you on the next one. Later, y'all. If iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. But if you're a man and you're alone or listening to this, then who sharpens you? What's going on, guys? Ted Faden here, host of the Modern Man Podcast, also founder of the Noble Knights Mastermind Group. And I'm just out here encouraging you to find your circle. Maybe you're on a personal growth journey and nobody around you understands the new mentality that you're possessing. That's okay. You can find an online community that will pour into you, will navigate your goals and navigate your obstacles, share their experiences, resources, and more. Join the Noble Knights Mastermind Group and try us out for free to tap into a community of men helping each other scale up and reach their goals. Check out themodernmanpodcast.com.